0: Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, growing Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message.
1: We've uh, been in the middle of a sermon series this month called Preserving patience, and we're talking about specifically how patience preserves what God's desires are. Today we will be turning to Deuteronomy chapter 6, a very famous passage in the Old Testament, especially the Torah. It's one really that solidifies who the Jewish people are. In it lies what we call the Shema, and Shema technically is just a word in Hebrew that means to hear more specifically, to listen. And so we will be looking at that, and we'll be talking about the foundational elements of faith within the Judeo-Christian perspective. But the question on the table is, what is wholehearted commitment? Wholehearted commitment. What is it? Hopefully we'll unpack that today. In a story from August 1992 edition of the Quality Press, it reads as follows. Forget about the concept of a town hall meeting to decide public policy. How about this instead? In ancient Greece, to prevent idiotic statesmen from passing idiotic laws upon the people, lawmakers, legend has it, were asked to introduce their laws while standing on a platform with a rope around their neck in the public square. If the law passed, the rope was removed. If it failed, the platform was removed. (laughs) Now, we laugh about that. I don't know if this is true or not. It says legend has it that in ancient Greece, this was one of the practices performed at certain locations within that time period and in that empire. I guarantee you that there would be less laws put before the people than there are today if that were the way we went about lawmaking, It would also be very telling who truly believes in the laws they put before the people. Are you willing to put your life on the line for what you believe in? And therein lies the question this morning. What is wholehearted commitment? Well, wholehearted commitment is that which you're willing to put your life on the line for because you believe it that much. What are you willing to put your life on the line for? And if you're willing to put your life on the line for things that you can see, taste, touch, hear, feel, you know, our five senses. If you're willing to put your life on the line for those things, how much more should you be willing to put your life on the line for the one who created you? And that's the question. How much more should we be willing to stake our belief On God, who believed enough in us that at just the right point in time in human history, he became a human and dwelt among us. And not only did he dwell among us, he dwelt among us in a way that was perfect, the perfect human, showing us what God had desired of us in the first place. But he didn't leave it there. See, God's wholehearted commitment for us drove him to the cross to where once and for all he could deal with the problem of sin and death that was ushered in in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve partook of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when God had told them not to because if they did, they would surely die. At one point in time in human history, God says they can't do it for themselves so I will do that for them because I love them and am committed to to them wholehearted commitment we focus on Deuteronomy chapter 6 today and this is what it reads like from the New Living Translation these are the commands and decrees and regulations that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you let's pause there who is writing this to the people it's a guy by the name of Moses Moses, if you haven't even been to church before, you've probably heard of this guy. Moses was the one who is attributed as having written the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, through Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy actually is written toward the end of the 40 years of wilderness wandering When uh, after the Exodus when the Israelites are at Mount Sinai. They've been given the Ten Commandments, and, and then uh, they go to take a look at the land. They send 12 spies in, Moses does. And when they come back, they say, The land's great, we would love to take over this land, but the people, there are huge, they're like giants, and we're like little grasshoppers compared to them. And so they refused to go into the land that God was leading them to. And so God says, fine, for the 40 days that the spies were in the land of Canaan, which would become Israel, he says, I'm going to tack on one year for every day they were in that land. So 40 years in the wilderness, just outside of the borders of Canaan, or what we call the promised land, until a generation of them died off. And so now we come to the book of Deuteronomy, and what? Moses had written in Exodus and Leviticus and some of numbers, now is rewritten again in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, as I've mentioned before, is actually called a second law or the second law, not a second law, but the second law. It's a reiteration of the first law given at Mount Sinai. You will see duplicates in the book of Deuteronomy that you'd found in Exodus and Leviticus and some of Numbers. The Ten Commandments is written again in the book of Deuteronomy. Why? Because what Moses is doing is telling this new generation, you guys now are getting ready to go into the land that God had prepared for you, that he promised for you, that you would be his people and, and, and he would be your God. And this will be how you are to live when you come into that land as my representatives, as my people. And so now Moses writes this. He says, these are the commands, the decrees, the regulations that the Lord, uh, your God, commanded me to teach you. You must obey them in the land that you're about to enter and occupy. And you and your children and grandchildren must fear the Lord, your God, as long as you live. Again, this isn't a fear of like, Complete panic and turning away from God, even though when somebody is in the presence of God, it does drive them to their faces, right? Because they were, oh, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, Isaiah said. Anybody who had encountered God, even Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter three, realized that he was in the presence of God, which meant more than likely he was gonna die. But God says, no, 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 don't worry. I have a task for you. So this holy fear that we are to have is a reverence. Like Dez said when she was reading up here, it's this holy reverence, this awestruck wonder of who God is in comparison to who we are. And so we are to fear God. This is what Moses is telling them, that you, your children and grandchildren, must fear the Lord. And if you look at that word Lord in any version of scripture, it should be an all-caps word, L-O-R-D, That is the word, or the name, that God gave to Moses at Exodus chapter 3, when Moses says, who shall I say is sending me to set the captives free in Egypt? And the Lord said, I am that I am. We call that the Tetragrammaton. Tetragrammaton, just meaning there's four letters there, no consonants. It's really the holy name of God. I am that I am, or transliterated as Yahweh. So... He says, if you obey all of his decrees and commands, you will enjoy a long life. Listen closely, Israel, and be careful to obey. Then all will go well with you, and you will have many children in the land flowing with the milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors promised you. Now, this is not a literal land of milk and honey. You don't see streams of milk or land of flowing honey. It is actually just words to connote this idea that it is a land of abundance. Milk was rich in protein and nutrients and it was something that was really looked upon as a, as a commodity that they necessarily needed in their culture, so was honey. Honey was a luxury, if you could find it. And it's dangerous to get it because usually there's you know swarms of bees around it. But this is a land that's flowing with that It's in abundance. It's not scarce. Listen, O Israel. Here's the Shema. Listen, or Shema, O Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. That is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What I find interesting about that, do you see how many times the name of God is mentioned there? The Lord our God, the Lord alone. It's in triplet. When you see something in triplet, whether it's holy, 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 or when you see in one sentence things mentioned three times, it's this idea of completeness. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. A lot of Trinitarian theologians will say this is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I don't know how much of a stretch that is, but I find it interesting that the, the name of God is mentioned three times in that one sentence that the Jewish tradition stakes its claim on. Every child is required not only to memorize it, but to live by it. There is no other God but the God of heaven and earth. Yahweh is his name. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. When you see in scripture where it says, listen, listen, or shema, shema, that means listen carefully, right? This isn't just a word that is meant to, okay, listen up, guys. It's meant to say, all right, listen with an active intent of listening so that it embeds and roots itself in your heart. This is foundational, is what Moses is saying. And you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. Where have we read that before? In the New Testament. Jesus' own words. When a religious scholar came to him, a Jewish religious scholar saying, all right, Jesus, we know you're a good teacher. Why don't you tell us what the greatest commandment is? Trying to catch him in a trap. And Jesus says these words. Guess what? It was uttered by Moses on behalf of God, centuries earlier. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Verse seven, repeat them again and again to your children. How often do you have to repeat things to your children? Right? A lot, right? I mean, those of you that have had kids that are now grown and out of the home, do you remember ever repeating yourself to your kids? So what Moses is now saying to the Israelites as they're about to come into the land that God had prepared for them is to say, listen up. God is one. There is no other beside him. And you need to teach that to your children. And not only that, teach the commands that God has given so that it will go well for them when they come in to this land that I'm giving them and they will live long fruitful healthy lives in this place if you just come to God and you trust in God wholehearted commitment to him he will never leave you nor will he forsake you all will go well And what I want you to do is tell them to your children, and have their children tell it to their children, and have their children tell it to their children, and there's a song that goes something like that, isn't there? Yes, there is, (laughs) which we don't sing here because it is a bit repetitive. All right, listen up. Here we go. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them on your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. What is Moses telling them to do? Well, phylacteries, yes. What is a phylactery? Well, actually, he didn't command phylacteries. But this is what came to them. They literally took what Moses was saying, and if you see in some of it, you can pull it up, type in the word phylactery, be careful how you spell it, you might get something you don't want to see, but phylactery are these little boxes that they would tie to the wrist or the forearm, and they would tie to their heads, and it it looks like a little top hat, On the head, on the front of the forehead, but it's a little box with small scrolls of scripture written on them and on the hand. So some Jews took this to the point where they took it literally, Moses was saying figuratively, but literally they would tie scripture to their forehead and to their arms. Some of us will tie strings around our fingers, right? You ever done that? Why do we do that? To remind us that there's some, we have this thing in staff meeting where uh, if a staff member wants to say something, they'll stick their fingers out crossed like this, meaning that I want to go next and I have something to say, but that also reminds them that they have something to say and it usually triggers that memory while another discussion is going on, right? Okay, so we have reminders too. They actually literally would then tie these things to their foreheads and to their arms, Talk about them when, you're get, when you get up, when you lie down. Does he say anything? Of course, the, the Jewish Sabbath was always on Saturday. Sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday is the Jewish Sabbath. Okay? Did, did Moses indicate that this was only to be done on sundown on Friday through sundown on Saturday? When did, when did, uh, when did he tell them they should do this stuff? All the time? Seven days a week? When they rise up, when they lay down? Um, let's see, when you're at home, when you're on the road, when you're going to bed, when you're getting up, tie them to your hands, wear them to your forehead as reminders. Write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. Why? How many times do you come in and out of your house? Or your property? Right? See, these, this is something they were committed to live their lives by constantly. It wasn't a segmented area of their lives that they just set aside for Sabbath, worship, and rest. It was all the time. And even, I'm sure, at certain times they say, Lord, as I dream, meet me in my dreams. So that even in my sleep, I can... Be in worship and communion with you. Verse 10 The Lord your God will soon bring you into the land he swore to give when he made a vow to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is a land with large, prosperous cities which you did not build. The houses will be richly stocked with goods that you did not produce. You will draw water from cisterns you did not dig, and you will eat from vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. And when you have eaten your fill in this land, be careful. Let me pause there for a second. What's, what's Moses telling them on behalf of God? You're coming into a land that has been tamed Already, it's not like the Wild West when the United States was discovered, and uh, and, and they started blazing blazing a trail across, you know, the, what would be called the United States. It was a rough and rugged land, untamed, really. But this isn't what the Jewish people are coming into. What are they coming into? An already conquered land with vineyards and crops, cultivated land already, homes and cities already built. Now, before you go in your mind, well, what's going to happen to the people that built those cities? It is honestly a different sermon for a different time. Suffice it to say, I'll give you a little side note here. God had had his limit of patience with those pagan nations and tribes in that land. By the time the Jewish people came upon the promised land, even after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, it just got worse from the Canaanite tribes. What happened? What were they doing? Well, they were offering human sacrifice. Their so-called gods of Molech, Asherah, Baal, demanded human blood sacrifice. Not only that... There were things called sex cults in that day. Doesn't sound honestly much different today, except we just put a different label on it. They would offer their babies to these guys, their firstborn. Doesn't sound much different today either. Those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And those who do not not learn the ways of God will continue the cycle of sin and death until their dying breath. So what was going on? Moses, inspired by God, told the people, you're coming into a land that God's already prepared for you. It's It's not gonna be easy. You still live in a fallen and broken world, but at least a lot of this stuff has been taken care of for you. All you have to do is listen and obey, follow my ways, be obedient to everything I've commanded you. But be careful, verse 12, not to forget the Lord who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. You must fear the Lord your God and serve him. When you take an oath, you must use only his name. Now, this seems contradictory to something in the New Testament. Where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, let your yes be yes, your no be no. Don't swear by God or his name or the temple or anything like that, right? But see, in that day and age, in that culture, and in that time period, centuries before Christ came onto the scene, in order to seal a deal like a contract agreement, they had to make it binding. And what would you do to make it binding? You would have to swear because they actually took the worship of God seriously then. They didn't walk around saying, I swear to God, I swear to God, like you might hear today. But these other tribes would swear by their own gods, which meant that when they broke that that covenant or contractual agreement with somebody, they fully anticipated the full hand of wrath of whatever god they worshipped. And so now what is God Or through what is Moses telling them on behalf of God? When you swear, don't use the name of any other God. Okay? Now, he's not advocating we swear. I think really the root of the issue is you should be such a person of integrity that your yes truly means yes and your no truly means no. But if you have to go to this point to where you have to make a binding contractual agreement other than a handshake and your good word, then only use the name of God. You must not worship any of the gods of the neighboring nations, for the Lord your God who lives among you is a jealous God. His anger will flare up against you, and he will wipe you from the face of the earth. I think this is interesting. I was teaching a class. Actually, I didn't teach. We kicked the video on to watch it. It's a truth project. And today's subject was, who is God? So if I go around and ask you, who is God, how would you describe him? What, what defining words would you use to describe who God is? It's not so easy. It's not so easy. And apart from the Word of God, we cannot truly know or even scratch the surface of who God is. But by reading the Word of God, we are able to at least unpack and unveil this sense of who this God truly is, what he expects and desires of us, and how we are to truly live our lives for him. He's a jealous God. I thought jealousy was bad, isn't it one of the seven deadly sins? Yeah, but God's jealousy is a little different. Let me explain, and I've mentioned this before in in, uh, messages, just fleetingly, but What is the difference between God's jealousy and human jealousy? Think of human jealousy. What does it tend to do? It it tends to destroy relationships. God is jealous when we offer our worship to anything other than him. Why? Because he loves us. His jealousy is a perfect jealousy, not marred by sin or death, Or imperfection, the way humanity's jealousy is. And so he is right and righteous to be jealous when we offer ourselves to anything other than him. Because he loves us and he knows that if we are not with him, then we're on the road to destruction. That's the kind of jealousy that God has. You must not worship any of the gods. For your God is a jealous God. Verse 16, you must not test the Lord your God as you did when you complained at Massa. You must diligently obey the commands of the Lord your God, all the laws and decrees he has given you. What happened at Massa? Well, if you look back, this is why they're wandering in the wilderness in the book of Numbers, and they're complaining, oh, we don't have any food. We've let us out here to die in this wilderness and barren land. Oh, and there's no water because we're in the desert. It's so dry. I'm so parched. And then you get the manna and they complain because the manna, we don't even know what it is, but it has the nutrients enough to sustain them in the wilderness miraculously given by God every morning as the dew evaporated off the ground, there was left this edible substance called manna. Oh, but we hate it. It's like, have you ever eaten something over and over and over until you're like, oh, I can't eat another, I, I can't even think of that. Okay, so we humanly can understand that, But they were starting to take for granted the provisions God had given them in the 40 years of wilderness wanderings. And so at Massa, Massa, they're complaining about drink. And God tells Moses, you can get water from that rock over there. You know what's so cool about this? It's a whole different sermon topic for a whole different time. But obedience requires us to do some things that seem senseless to the rest of the world around us. Hey, Moses, go over and speak to that rock. It'll give you some water. Have you ever talked to a rock before? And if you have, have you talked to a rock in front of other people? And if you have, have they ever thought you were crazy? If somebody catches you talking to an inanimate object, you're gonna more than likely look a little foolish. But God drives us to these these places of foolishness to the rest of the world to see are we really who we should be for him? Do we really trust that what he's saying is true? And if so, let me see if that's correct. Even Moses faltered. Because in one instance, where he's told to speak to the rock to bring forth water, instead he takes a staff and he whacks the rock twice. It still brings forth water because God is a good and merciful God in spite of our disobedience. But it was that one act that kept Moses from entering the promised land along with the rest of the Israelites. You must diligently obey the commands of the Lord your God all the laws and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it will go well with you, so all will go well with you. Then you will enter and occupy the good land that the Lord swore to give your ancestors. See, he could have got, given up on them. You know what's so cool about God? Is he's willing to wait generation after generation after generation after generation for faithfulness to come. He said, I swore to give your ancestors this. I'm going to hold up my end of the bargain, even though you, your ancestors, their ancestors, and their ancestors broke the covenant agreement. I'm still going to fulfill my end of the bargain, because I love you. He is faithful. He can never not be faithful, because to be unfaithful would be Him denying that he is truly who he is, which is God. God can never be unfaithful to that which he commits himself to. And he's committed himself to seeking and saving that which was lost. Diligently obey the commands of the Lord your God. The law's decrees he's given you. Do what's right and good in the Lord's sight, so all go well with you. Then you will enter and occupy the good land that the Lord swore to give your ancestors. You will drive out all the enemies living in the land just as the Lord said you would. In the future, your children will ask you, what's the meaning of these laws and decrees and regulations that the Lord, our God, has commanded us to obey? Now this is presupposing that each generation is gonna do what Moses had said for them to do. Tie them, write them on your your doorposts and on your gates. Talk about them when you get up and when you lay down as you go about your work, whatever you do, this is presupposing they continue to do that. Are children in our culture today asking questions about God? Do we have a generation hungry for Yahweh? I'm going to contend not in great majority. As each successive generation in the United States has continued down this path to where we've segmented our faith off into this way off corridor of our life, there are not successive generations that are being raised up where this is talked about every day when you rise and when you walk and when you go about your day. No, it's relegated and complainingly so to an hour, to an hour and a half on Sunday mornings and then if the pastor goes a little too long, we get a little squeamish and squirrely and then we we think, well, I I need to go to a place where they're preaching 15, 20-minute sermons and the worship is this or that and you can say whatever this or that is in your own desires. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been in the ministry for going on 23 years. And we're at a crisis point, a pivotal point in our generation and in our culture. See, we've been in the promised land, flowing with milk and honey, and we're doing what Moses had warned them be careful when you come into this land and when it's going well and when things are great. Because you start to take it for granted. And when you start to take that for granted, guess what's gonna happen? You're gonna slide down that slippery slope of forgetting God and that you did not do this. It was him through you who made these things possible. And when you forget, you're doomed to repeat the failures of the past. Verse 21, then you must tell your children, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his strong, mighty hand. The Lord did miraculous signs and wonders before our eyes, dealing terrible blows against Egypt and Pharaoh and all the people. The 10 plagues, the parting of the sea, the manna and the wilderness. Water from a rock in the desert. See, this is what God did for us. And though you weren't there to see it, I'm telling you, it's true. And the Lord our God commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear Him so that He can continue to bless us and preserve our lives as He did or as He has done to this day. For we will be counted as righteous when we obey all the commands the Lord our God has given us. Here's the key point. Wholehearted commitment to God's commands is a means to blessing and preservation of life. Let me say that again. Wholehearted commitment to God's commands and to his teachings is a means to blessing and preservation of life. (laughs) What do you know that's absent from that key point? It doesn't say it'll be perfect. It doesn't say you'll have everything you want. But when we obey God, when we follow him faithfully, we're blessed. Even when we don't have two nickels to rub together, we can be blessed. And life can be preserved. Preserved. This is the same thing that Jesus says in Matthew 11. When he's asking you, why do you worry about what you'll eat or what you'll drink? Why do you worry about what you wear? See, the Lord provides food for the sparrows and the birds. And he dresses up these these beautiful flowers, lilies in the field. Prettier than Solomon could have ever imagined with all of his royal robes. And don't you think the Lord cares more for you than the birds who will drop dead or the flowers of the field that will fade and wither away? Aren't you more important to God than them? So why do you worry, Jesus asked. Why do you worry about tomorrow? Tomorrow has enough worries of its own. And how many of you, if you do worry about tomorrow, can add another day to your life? Let me ask you a question. Now, what is wholehearted commitment? <laughs> I asked you that earlier. Do you have a better handle on it? You see, I contend that if we are wholeheartedly committed to God, it doesn't matter what happens in Ukraine or Russia, doesn't matter what happens across the face of this globe, that would cause us to go, oh, no, World War III is coming to town! And I'm not just flippantly throwing caution to the wind. I want you to hear me. My children are beginning to ask me, oh no, when Russia invaded Ukraine, right? Are we going into World War III? They're experiencing what those in my generation experienced during the Cold War, where we would have to do these drills where we would run and get under our desk in case of nuclear fallout down in the basement of the school, just as we would do for tornado drills and anything else. And I was scared to death as a kid. Why? Because I wasn't being taught early on from an early age that there's no hope outside of putting our whole, complete trust in God. Do you know what was going on? Not in the days of Deuteronomy chapter 6, but prior to that, but also in Jesus' day. You would fear for your life to be called a Christ follower or a person of the way, which is what they were initially known as before they became Christians. If you were a person of the way, you had a mark on your back to be persecuted or executed. You're one of those Jesus people, huh? This is why Peter denied Christ three times before the rooster crowed. Remember? Why? Because he had a mark on his back. He was one of the inner 12. Wholehearted commitment will put you in the crosshairs of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And you can stay outside of that risk, but you cannot be a private Christian. I hear this this fallacy and this false teaching a lot. Well, I have a private faith. No, that's not biblical. That's actually not faith at all. That's not trust in God. Trust in God is completely surrendering yourself to Christ through faith and belief in him and becoming a part of the larger body of Christ in which there is transparency and openness and love. A place where there's grace and mercy and forgiveness. Yes, a place where there's rebuke when necessary, but it's rebuke out of love to bring somebody along in the faith. You see, this is why the enemy has had such great destruction over the church and our culture. This is why the church and our culture has become compromised in its teachings, allowing things it should never allow within the body of Christ. Things that God says are bad and evil. Things that in Jeremiah and Isaiah's day, when the Israelites, after centuries of having lived in the land, had gotten to the point where they had neglected and forgotten God, had started adopting the cultures and the religions of the other surrounding nations. And they said, well, it's okay, let's become a pluralistic society, It's not bad if we worship this God along with our God. What if we just change the teaching, just let's tweak it a little bit to make it more palatable for the surrounding culture. See, that's not wholehearted commitment to God. That is, in essence, cheating on God. It's called an adulterous relationship. And God still loves us in spite of that, and he still continues to try to woo us in spite of that. But the only true hope is if we stay centered and in alignment with his purposes for us. You see, commitment to God alone is paramount to blessings and preservation. Theologian Patrick Miller writes, to love God is to be loyal to the Lord, to keep the Lord's commandments, to walk in the way of the Lord to do or to heed the commandments, statutes, and ordinances. Let me ask you a question. So when Moses is writing this, what commands is he telling us that we should obey? The commands of the Lord. What are the commands of the Lord? Well, we can do one of two things. We can look at the Jewish tradition, which tells us there are 613 laws. And you should, you should know those, you should understand them. Genesis to Deuteronomy, you'll find them all in there. But what specific laws of God were given by his very voice to the people in Exodus chapter 19 and 20? The 10, right? So, Moses, who repeats the 10 in Deuteronomy is referring to them. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't take my name in vain. Don't make a graven image of me. Don't, don't carve me in stone, because you don't even know what I look like. Honor your father and your mother. Keep the Sabbath holy. And the list goes on. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. But see, we overcomplicate it. What? <laughs> okay. Don't steal. But th- what if I take a paperclip from work? Is that Okay. They'll never miss it. Right? I'm not going to go off on this tangent, but the reality is, we try to find loopholes in God's law because we try to find loopholes in the law today. I speed. I know, gasp, right? I had one of our friends who actually came and worshipped with us here not too long ago from Ohio, who now lives out closer to Philadelphia. And we, we, he's the guy that got me to run the marathon, which I damaged my knees and had to run the half. Anyway, different story for a different time. But he, he gave me this, this little word that I thought, oh, I'll keep that in my back pocket. is uh, in driving on the highways or the interstate. Now, don't take this because this is disobedience to God's law. Or, no, to, yeah, whatever. So it's like... Um, Let's see. What is seven miles an hour over the speed limit? Seven, you're in heaven. Eight, you're great. Nine, you're mine. It's what I what he told me about law enforcement. So I don't know if that's true or not. He said he heard it. It's a legend. Let's say it's it's a legend now. I don't know if it's true, but so I've kind of lived by that. Sorry, that was way off on tangent and had nothing to do. I I just it was you know confession is good for the soul. feel so much better now. Anywho, let's go back to this. All right. What does Jesus say in John chapter 14? I quote a lot from John chapter 14, but the one command he gives here is, if you love me, obey my commands. Do you think Jesus had a whole different set of commands than God did for the, uh, for the, uh, Israelites in the old Testament, the people of God? No, and, and we can contend to debate that. I know there's some old covenant and new covenant theologians out here. I'll say, wait, 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 I'm going to call you out on that. Okay, call me out later. Let's talk about that. But let me just say this look at the Ten Commandments, and then let's mirror those with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So we may not be old covenant theologians or old covenant believers because God. Through Christ gave us a new covenant through His blood, right? That's when we do communion. We talk about that. But if you read, if you read Matthew five, six, and seven, those chapters, Jesus said something very significant about, if not all, at least most of those ten commandments. What did He say about adultery? Okay, so. Whereas the Ten Commandments dealt with the action of the person, Jesus takes it a step further and says, "Yeah, I agree. You've heard it said you shouldn't you shouldn't uh, commit adultery, but I say, if you lust after someone in your heart, it says if you lust after a woman, because he was speaking there, so does that negate women? Women, you can lust after men all you want, guys, right? And no, no, it's not what it's saying. If you lust after someone, you've already committed adultery." with them in your heart. You've heard it said you shouldn't murder. But Jesus said, I say, if you hate a brother, you stand in judgment. And the list goes on. Read Matthew 5 through 7. We're not old covenant people. No, we're new covenant people. But Jesus reiterated them and took them to a deeper level. So we're still not off the hook. We're still called to live holy lives. We're still called to be righteous people. Well, Brandon, I'm not perfect. I'll never be perfect. I stumble and fall at times. This is where God's grace comes into play. But Paul says something significant in the book of Romans. Well, should I send more and more that grace could abound all the more? He says, no, forbid it. God forbid that would happen. Because if you go out casting God's grace aside because you think it's just going to continue to cover a multitude of sins, you're only fooling yourself and you're becoming captive to the enemy who seeks to still kill and destroy. If we're not careful, prosperity can distract us from a commitment to God. We run the risk of taking for granted the blessings that we have as a nation. As I mentioned earlier, for the most part, we are well-fed, we're clothed, we're housed, we're free. Even with inflation, it doesn't look like many of us are starving, right? In our culture. That doesn't mean we won't ever get to that point. However, a nation that forgets where its blessings come from are doomed to become cursed in the end. When a people don't have to worry about food or security or shelter, the tendency is to become spoiled and ungrateful. This is what happened as the Israelites continued on in their course of history. And it didn't take long, quite honestly, before they succumbed to their own comfort levels. Those who remain humble and thankful for the blessings of abundance and prosperity are the ones whose focus is on God rather than the self. See, this is why we've gotten so cushy in our culture. We can now debate what is male and female. Please understand me. This is not hate speech up here. I want you to hear me. We are to love and love relentlessly the way God first loved us. But we have become so sucked in to this sense of prosperity that the, the things we need, to, the things we argue about today? Are you kidding me? See, this is where the enemy has a heyday. If he can get cultures focus off God, he can get them on some of the most inane things. It's not until a culture comes into crisis that it finds God again, at least in human history, right? I've said this before, where are the places on earth where the Christian church is thriving right now? It's a place where they have to make a wholehearted commitment because a half hearted commitment will put them square in contradiction to the, to the government or the culture of the day. You don't put your life on the line for a half hearted commitment. But see, we've taken for granted all of the freedoms we've been given to the point now those freedoms are ebbing away and we are becoming a culture enslaved by sin and death rather than being free from it. Well, Brandon, our culture quite honestly started off bad and it has all of these. No, here's the thing, you're right. But our founders knew well enough that if our governmental laws and structures were rooted in Judeo-Christian values, that it would self-correct. Yeah, we can point a finger in our history and say, we really screwed up there. This is really bad. It's embarrassing to even talk about. But it's not what defines us. It's our being rooted in Christ as a culture that defined us. But when we hit the place of prosperity, when we came to this place in our culture to where we weren't living meal to meal, where we weren't having to worry about clothing, say the middle of the 20th century, we started to take things for granted. In the 1950s and 60s, we start to have these debates. Should prayer be in schools anymore? What about Bible readings? What, what about just a moment of silence at the beginning of the day? How about taking the words God out of the pledge? How about a new, how about a new anthem to sing? Listen, don't get me wrong. I'm not promoting United States. I'm promoting Christ. And a nation, this is an example, a nation that forgets its roots is doomed to fail. We were rooted, and I said were, in Judeo-Christian values. In a time when the church shouldn't have been wagging a finger and pointing, but should have been on the front lines of this dialogue in culture back in the 50s and 60s and so on and so forth. It was on the front lines in the early 1800s through the Civil War. The church was leading the abolitionist movement. The church, was, the church has always led, the true church of God has always led in a positive way to bring freedom. Freedom. Well, what about the Catholic Church? They they killed people. What about the Inquisition? What about I didn't have this in my notes, but hear me out on this. That's not the true church. You know why? Because they had veered so away from scriptural principles and the commands of God that they put the law of man on people. This is happening. Just look at the Protestant tradition today. How many pastors have risen to fame and fortune and they've forgotten their roots or maybe they started off wrong to begin with that have now fallen from grace, so to speak? You can, I'm guessing you can come up with a myriad of different names right now of religious leaders and spiritual people who have risen to the point of fame and fortune and that had been the ones we really staked claim in as being the one that we are learning from. When we veer off track, even by one degree from God's intentions, teachings, and commands, what happens? One degree off over a period of time will put us completely on the wrong track. Church, that's where we are today. It's not hopeless though, because here's the last point. Each generation must be taught the importance of love and commitment God. I heard it said even since I was a kid that we're one generation away from the church becoming extinct in our culture. And if you look at the Barna research or or, uh, um, any of the other polls and pollsters out there, they'll show you that that's kind of the case. We've been on that trend. I uh, didn't read it to my class this morning because I didn't have time, but um, I was reading uh, a bit of research from the Barna Group about what it means to have a biblical worldview. Among Christian parents that were polled, this is crazy. I thought this was crazy. Over 1,500 people that were polled at random, or in Christianity, Christian parents that were polled, only 2% of them, hold a biblical worldview. What is a biblical worldview? Well, there are core fundamentals to faith that almost all Christian traditions historically believe on all the way back to the beginning of the church. There are typically eight core fundamentals on God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, the Bible. Actually, Mr. uh, Mr. Pittman right here is teaching our class on those basic Christian fundamentals on Sunday mornings. The church has been able to root its stake or root its claim on those core fundamentals without wavering in our culture. If we do not teach them to each successive generation, and I'm not just saying within the physical church building, parents, if you're not teaching them to your kids at home, we're failing a generation. And we've been talking about foster care for a little over a year, two years now. You know how many kids are in the foster care system because families are broken? I mean, so bad even that there are not enough foster families to meet the need. It goes back to a deeper-rooted issue. Why does North Main Street Church of God have a vision to develop completely committed followers of Christ? Because we believe that if we are helping to develop completely committed followers of Christ, from cradle to grave, we can fix broken families. We can fix broken relationships. We can help children to be raised up in homes that have a godly foundation with the core fundamentals in place that are being taught when, when you rise up and when you lay down at night, when you go about your day. and Yes, you're going to have your kids from time to time look at you when you bring up a scripture verse because it, you know, your conversation reminds you, and they're going, like, oh, here we go, the Bible stuff again. Get over it, right? Do it anyway. If we give up when our kids scoff at us, do you think we'll even take it outside of our homes? That's why the church is dying. We're not willing to risk anything. Let me close with this as our worship team comes forward. A a missionary society wrote to David Livingston. You ever heard of David Livingston, one of the famous missionaries of all time? To Africa? Have you found a good road where you are? So these, these, these people in England wanted to send more missionaries to help With David Livingston's missionary uh, journeys and they asked have you found a good road where you are if so we want to know how to send other men to join you in your efforts and Livingston wrote back very simply and very succinctly if you have men who will come only if they know there's a good road I don't want them I want men who will come even if there's no road at all. Church, we need to be blazing new trails. We need to be light and salt. We are called to be cities on a hill, like lighthouses on the coastal regions, pointing the way to safety. Church, we, we've got To get back out of these holy huddles and back into a world that is seeking purpose and meaning in life. And the only true real source to purpose and meaning is found in Christ. Not some holy object out there in the unknown realms. But an intimate personal God who says, I'm going to come and give my life for you. I'm going to dwell among you. I'm going to become one of you. Because I love you. And I want you to know who I am. God's special revelation of himself through Jesus Christ. To pull the blinders off a society that had an inkling of what God might be like, but not really sure, except through the teachings of Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But now God becomes one of us something that only Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob could have dreamed of, to dwell among us, who then died on a cross, rose from the grave, and says, listen, I can't stay around. We're not gonna build another temple because my temple's gonna be in you. I'm gonna dwell in your heart and in your life. You will be embodiments of me to the rest of the world. You will be complete images restored Through faith in Jesus Christ. Wholehearted commitment, and yes, I've gone over time. It was not purposeful or intent for today, but wholehearted commitment is more than an hour, let's say two hours, at church on a Sunday morning. It's more than that. Or, Brandon, I've got nothing more to give. That's a great place to be. Surrender it all. Surrender it all. Surrender everything you do on your calendar to God. I promise you, you won't regret it. It doesn't mean give it up, but it might mean that if you hand it off to God and allow Him control of those things on your calendar, they might become more fruitful and more fulfilling than you could ever imagine. Some of you have never made that personal commitment to Christ. You you believe here in your head, but it's never made the connection right here with your inmost being. And it's not that you have to be emotionally weeping. That's not what I'm talking about. It's about making this head-to-heart connection and saying, yes, I'm all in. I don't just intellectually believe, but I really believe. And because I really believe, I will walk it out in every facet of my life. This is wholehearted commitment. This is Deuteronomy six. If you feel that tug to come and pray, somebody will pray with you. If you wanna make a first time commitment but you just don't know what to do. You had this intellectual understanding but there's been this disconnect in you. Come to my right, your left. We'll pray for you. If you know somebody in your own life, in your own family who's like that and who's struggling, come. Somebody will pray with you and carry that burden with you. If you're wanting to reconcile with God on your own, you come to my left, or right. Nobody's going to bother you over here. But don't leave, as I beg every week, don't leave without making some kind of step toward God through faith in Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, in this place, and those who are watching online, I know that you are not bound by space and time, but can be at any place at the same time. And God, we honor your presence, whether here or at home. Whether we leave this building today and go out to our cars, we don't leave you behind. You go with us, especially especially if we've welcomed you into our lives through faith. I pray if there's any lack of commitment in this place today, that wholehearted commitment would hold sway over everyone in this room and everyone who hears this message. Father, it's not about it's not about doing more things. It's about being a child of God. Help us to understand that in being a child we live daily what that really means. Forgive us where we faltered and fallen by the wayside or just been stubborn or even literally just ignorant of what your word means with regard to obeying commandments and teachings. God, you, through Jesus Christ, were the living word made flesh. Help us to follow you the way, the truth, and the life, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.